Well, it's my privilege to open up Hebrews 13 this morning. Again, Hebrews 13. And before I get into our text, I want to give a little bit of a kind of a just a pre pre sermon before the sermon, I guess, just to say for parents, we are going into a text and a topic in particular on marriage that uh, you may you might desire for younger children or children who um, are adolescent to perhaps not be um, in the teaching time. I'm going to be talking about the marriage bed being undefiled, etc. from Hebrews 13 verse 4. Just want to give a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of a, a parental control opportunity for you uh, to parent in the way that you would prefer. Perhaps you'd want your children um, to hear about these topics, but the Bible is clear on marriage, on healthy marriage, on how marriage is supposed to function. And I want to talk about that uh, from God's word this morning. We are um, committed here to Bible exposition, which means verse by verse, line by line, preaching through books of the Bible. And what that means for all of us is that there are topics that come to us rather than us coming to them or going to them. And so this is one of those mornings, one of those topics for you to discern what you want to do with your kids. But um, I will just be preaching the Bible and just using Bible text. And so with that said, I'm going to jump into God's word at this time and follow with me as I read Hebrews chapter 13. And I'll begin with verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, Hebrews 13 has brought us to the application section of this great book. Hebrews, not so dissimilar from the book of Romans, is a long haul book and it's got a lot of theologically rich and heavy and deep material. You could say this is a theologically dense book. It's full of truth. The old covenant, what it meant in comparison to the new covenant, the better covenant, and how the old covenant said that we had to sacrifice and give offerings through priests. And in the new covenant, we have a better priest. We have the ultimate high priest. We worship the son of God, who is the son, the the full revelation of God to us. We worship as believers. We are marathoners. We're running the race that's set before us, just like all of the Old Testament saints from Genesis through into the New Testament. We, We kind of run that same marathon that they were running, but we run with a fuller and complete revelation that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know where we're going. We know our inheritance that awaits. And all of this now needs to be 
applied. What does it mean to live out something like this? What does it mean? Are we just supposed to know it? Are we just supposed to understand it like a Bible class or Bible lesson? Or how are we, are we supposed to actually put it into practice and think about the Bible and the weight of it behind some practical living. And Hebrews 13 says, yes, we're supposed to be very practical right now. We're talking about loving people. We're talking about having brotherly affection, Philadelphian affection, where we love our brothers, where we care about people, where we love God's mission so much, where we're, we talked about last week, we love his uh, mission work and ministry where people come and we can be hospitable to them and care about people who are part of God's mission, part of God's advancing his kingdom. We sacrifice in that way. We, we care about people who are in prison. We care about the persecuted church. We care about people maybe by name, but certainly in principle, we pray for the persecuted church. We, as if we're in prison, they're with them. That's a heart of brotherly affection, a heart of love for people in the body. These are applications that need to matter to us. And in the time of the coronavirus and the season where you're home, where you're kind of sitting around, perhaps drumming your fingers and going, man, when am I going to get out there? We need to be stocking our hearts and minds full of applications for how to be and how to live when we get going. We need to be this now and in the stage that we're in, but social distancing is sort of opening up and, and we're going to begin to, I'm saying that in reverse, but we're going to begin to be able to socialize more and more, I presume. And as we do, we need to live out the Christian gospel. We need to live it in terms of love. We also need to live it in terms of marriage and live it in terms of money. This is a hard reset season. This is the time to dig deep into the sensitive applications. It's one thing to talk about mission work. It's another thing to talk about your marriage. It's another thing to talk about your money. What is that going to mean? What does it mean now? Perhaps you're struggling in your marriage uh, because you've been confined with your spouse all of these days and weeks, and it's getting really tough and all kinds of stuff is popping and being exposed. Can't imagine things like that happening, right? But when you are together, out of the rat race rhythm of life and you're having to really dig in and say, how are we doing spiritually? It's, it's a good time to look at God's word and test it according to what the scripture says. In terms of money, it's the same thing. These are the core heart matters that show that Hebrews 1 to 12 really was leading us somewhere in terms of living it out. This is more than just tying the Old Testament together with the New Testament. It is the weight of all of Scripture behind how you live. And you know, we're going to talk about this more next week, where your treasure is, your heart lies also. We're talking about your heart, where your marriage is. There is your heart as well. Are you coveting something that you do not have? Are you coveting a, an ideal that's not biblical? Are you bound up in lust you know, I was looking at a statistic yesterday. Pornography is up 11%. People are dissatisfied. They're locking into things and going to places where they ought not go. The Bible is our callback. The Holy Spirit using God's word to your heart is our drawback to truth and hitting a hard reset in a godly way. There are people who are suicidal. There are people who are struggling with depression right now. God's word can shine the light on those things. 
What we're driving towards in the text is an issue that is expanding the author's point. Let brotherly love continue. Let the love of the gospel, let the love of everything that's been taught shine out in your heart for others in matters of mission, in the matters of um, the mistreated, verse 3, those who are in prison, but also in matters of marriage and in matters of money. Now, what does that look like? Well, the author kind of flips the coin in terms of the love virtue with another word that I want to highlight here and bring to the forefront. And it's the word being content. See that in verse five? Keep your life free from the love of money. Don't be ensnared by that idol, the love of money. Instead, be content. This is filling out what love looks like. We love people. We love the Lord. We want his mission. We love our spouse. And we also need to not love money in a tight-fisted way that brings harm to us. What frees us? What is the key that unlocks that door? Contentment. Contentment. It's basically two sides of the same coin. Loving God, being content. That's, these are the two virtues that are bracketing these commands. Verse two commands really tie together with love. These other commands that follow in verses four and five tie together with being content. Contentment in marriage and contentment with your money. Contentment. It's such a elusive term. It really is the opposite of being covetous. Paul said he was undone by the law when he saw that he was a covetous man. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that he'd been to a bunch of testimony meetings, heard a bunch of confessions that were brought to him. But he said, I've never had one person confess the sin of covetousness to me ever. This is the opposite of being content. I was a discontented college kid. I remember I was wanting um, to find my life partner, find a spouse. And I would hear these chapel messages over and over and over. Philippians 4, the secret of being content. I found it. Paul in prison, he was isolated there. He was single. Verse 11, it says, now I'm speaking of being, being in need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content to be brought low um, and know how to abound in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I heard those sermons and I remember thinking, but if contentment is a secret, then how do we know how to be content? What, what is the secret of being content? And then people say, look, if you want to get married one day, find all of your contentment in the Lord. And then, and then as a stipulation, he will provide your spouse, your life partner. Remember that over and over. And I was just kind of bummed by that. Thinking if contentment's a secret, then how can I be content so that I can unlock this door? Well, I did a little deeper studying since then. And I found that If you focus on Philippians 4, not that this is our key text, but it is interesting to see that Paul said, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned, in essence, the secret of being content. The word learned is the key to understanding contentment. Contentment is a lifelong pursuit like sanctification, like being holy. You grow in your godliness and in your contentment over a lifetime. It's not something that you take a pill for, something that God just turns on in your life and go, oh, I'm magically content. I'm so happy. 
abundance or having very little, I'm doing great. No, this is a life pursuit to be content. And this is the virtue that governs the commands about honoring marriage, about not having a defiled home life, a defiled marriage bed, about being solid with your money and sound in your heart in terms of what you have or do not have. It's all around being content. This is core application time. This is the time to dig deep in terms of where you are or where you are not. Here's the hard reset moment as you're getting ready to enter into social life again. There was a book I read on contentment written by a medical doctor, Richard Swenson. It's the secret to lasting calm. It says, he said, contentment is not picked up in, a natural, in the natural course of living. It's not by growing older, richer, getting married, having children. Most surprisingly, contentment is not innate to being a Christian. And here it is. He says, discontentment is dug in for the duration until our last breath. The only way to dislodge this grim fortress is to learn it away. We're going to learn away discontentedness. We're going to learn away the idolatry of covetousness. We're going to learn it away, not in one sermon, but we're going to start the learning process as we talk about marriage and we talk about money, marriage and money. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, written by Jeremiah Burroughs. He said the same thing in the 1500s. Contentment in every condition is a great art. It's a spiritual mystery. It is to be learned and learned as mystery. Contentment. These are gut topics. All right. So point three in our outline. This is part two of the sermon series. There'll be a part three next week. We've talked so far about mission, talked about the mistreated. Now we're talking about marriage. And how do you tie together being content or the topic of contentment in marriage? Well, in two ways. First of all, we are to understand marriage as God's great institution. Now, this is not just for those of you who are married. Some of you have been married and now aren't married. Some of you have never been married. Some of you are married. We're talking to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is called to honor marriage. Look at this in verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all, among everybody. Marriage is to be something that you love whether you've been through a bad marriage, whether you are in a bad marriage, whether you are not married, whether you were never married, whether you are widowed, we are to honor marriage. We are not to rebel against marriage. We're not to wish marriage away. We're not supposed to fall prey to the culture's false ideologies and idolatries that say it's better to, to just run free and do whatever you want to do. Today, recreational intimacy, casual intimacy, You know, all of this gross and graphic portrayal of what people are living for and immorality is the cesspool that flies in the face of what the scripture says we're to hold in high honor, which is marriage, which is commitment, which is founded on contentment. Well, how do we tie this together? Well, first of all, you have to understand that marriage is God's idea and it's God's institution. It's what God made God designed marriage. We're going to talk about this. I'm just going to unpack this. A lot was on my heart this week regarding marriage because I think there's such a threat to marriages where people are locked up in homes during this time that people's temptations are probably firing in ways that they haven't in other situations and circumstances. Marriage is God's design for men and women. In the early church, people lauded celibacy. 
Now, not for perverted sense, senses like people do today where people are saying, I want to be single so I can live it up. People were religiously single. They were single for um, holiness sake. And it was a false humility where there were monks and um, there was monasticism and you had aesthetics, ascetics like Origen who, who castrated himself, who ultimately um, thought himself as holier than marriage. Paul renounced this. He said that false teachers were forbidding marriages. First Timothy 4, 1 to 3 called them liars with seared consciences. That they were promoting doctrines of demons. When people eschew marriage, when people dog out marriage, when people don't believe in the commitment and the institution of marriage, they're lying. They're lying about what God has said is the right path, the right design, the right setup. God invented it all the way back in the garden. He said of Adam, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'll provide a helper. Genesis 2.18. He designed marriage for a companionship. He designed marriage so that our world would multiply with people. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28 was the command he was giving to the first marriage. God is intimately involved in marriage. Genesis 2.22. The Lord... He fashioned the woman out of Adam's rib, and it says he made into a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. There was intimacy with the first marriage. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Now look at God's heart behind that. That person obtains favor from the Lord. Matthew 19.6 says uh, the two become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God is the author of marriage and he's the author of marriages. And for you to be content in your marriage, you have to understand God gave you your particular spouse in the way that he or she actually is. Personality, timing, circumstances, it's all part of God's design it's the design of marriage. Ephesians 5 pictures the relationship between Christ and the church to parallel the husband and the wife. The church is called the bride of Christ. Redemptive history culminates around the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, 6 to 9. The roles of headship and submission in Ephesians 5. Also in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. They portray Christ as the head and the bride as the follower. But there is also mutual submission in a marriage. Marriage is about getting along. Marriage is about meeting in the middle. First Peter chapter 3 says that a wife is to live with, with her husband and win an unbelieving husband without a word. But then in verse 6 it says a husband's to live with his wife how? In an understanding way. Understanding. Treating her as a weaker vessel. Not overreacting to things. There's leadership, there's submission, but there's mutuality and blend in the one flesh relationship. That's marriage. That's healthy marriage. It's built on desire, men desiring women, women desiring men. This is natural. This is normal. This is uh, how male and female design was meant to be. Our culture, according to Romans 8, is living out um, what was prophesied and predicted in Romans 8, where people now have turned what's natural into unnatural desires. It's destructive. 
the unnatural state of things is destructive and it's undermining the institution of marriage in the name of marketing and in the name of making money. Perversion sells, perversion, immorality is marketable. It, it goes inside the, the viewer and the consumer's heart that's filled with sin and lust. It's to be rejected. Holding high, esteeming high marriage is all based on a contentment with God's design. Do you see that? It's God's purposes, God's institution, the way he made it. This is healthy marriage. First Corinthians 6 and 7 talks all about people coming together, one man for one woman for life, staying together, not assuming that you're going to stay together for a season and get a different spouse, a different spouse, a different spouse, but assuming that you're together for life. Flies in the face of face of culture. Think about it. Marriage vows being spoken formally till death do us part. Those have to mean something. And for a Christian, we have the illumined Holy Spirit given conviction that this is right. But with our culture, and the reason I'm going on and on about marriage is because our culture is so on the attack against marriage that when we come to a text like this, let marriage be held in honor among all. I just want to exhort all of us to be the ones who are championing marriage, no matter what. You say, well, my marriage fell apart or I'm not married. Well, I understand that there are all kinds of scenarios and circumstances, but the Bible still gives us the picture and vision of true marriage. And we can esteem it as God's institution for what he created. Well, it doesn't stop there. Under being content in marriage, I want to talk about it, not just in terms of the vision that we see from Scripture, not just in terms of acknowledging marriage as institution, but also in obeying commands surrounding marriage, being committed to marriage. Marriage is a commitment to obedience. Look at this in verse four. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage bed is a euphemism for marital relations. It's to be undefiled. This same word is used in James to talk about pure and undefiled religion, visiting orphans and widows. First Peter 1, I think it's verse 4, talks about our inheritance, our salvation that's awaiting us in heaven. That's undefiled. Undefiled. That's the marriage bed. The two will become one flesh a spouse completing another spouse. Ephesians 5, 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What am I talking about here? Well, I'm not just talking about physical union. I'm also talking about a pure and undefiled marriage in terms of the heart. You know, a healthy marriage is one where two are coming together as personalities, one flesh means people melding into each other over a lifetime in terms of how you think, in terms of how you act, in terms of how you live, in terms of shared memories, shared experiences, shared loves, shared affections. I've heard it said that the person that's most influential in your life before you're married are your parents. And you might disagree with that, maybe. 
But by and large, a parent, even if it's a bad influence, has had a dramatic influence in your life in the way you think, in the convictions that you carry and how you live. They're very influential. But once you leave and cleave, once you become one flesh with your life partner, that person becomes the number one influence in your life. Or that person should. The husband to the wife, the wife to the husband, they should be your best friend in terms of how you think, in terms of how you act. That's why it's so important for people who are considering getting married to be on the same page theologically, biblically before you come together. So many people reject the idea of of your faith mattering for it to match before you become committed to each other. But if one person believes differently than the other person, that person will have a deep influence. And often it can interrupt the marriage. It can interrupt the union. It can create um, catastrophic results in terms of your kids, where one spouse wants your child to believe one thing and the other spouse wants the child to believe something else. It's so important to be together theologically and spiritually and have a sound doctrine together. That's why it's important to go to church together. It's why it's important to come together as a family under God's word, to be on the same page and to manage that well throughout a lifetime. So important. Remember, before I married Judy, she was a heavy, heavy coffee drinker. And, you know, I, I didn't really, I drank some coffee. I, I was working through a master's degree and, you know, would, would drink coffee, but I told my wife, I said, you know, after we get married, I'm really going to basically wean you off coffee. Like we're we're just not going to drink coffee very much. It's not good for us. And, you know, I drank coffee right before I came up here. Why? Because she won. Because we're one. (laughs) And, And we... We enjoy things together and that influence happens. I remember I came from, you know, a home where it was just my mom and my dad and my older brother and everything is pretty, pretty simple and pretty understandable and recognizable in our house and ordered and all of that. And I was holding Judy in my arms. We were engaged and I was saying, you know, how many children do you want? And she looked at me and said, I don't know, four, five. Six, six. And I'm thinking, what? what? What is happening here? You know, and and so then we had um, one child, two, then three. And I was like, oh, I'm good with with three. And and she looked at me and said, you know, maybe we could just have one more. And boom, there was twins. <laughs> Behold. And then there was one more. And so six. And, and that was the desire of her heart. And her desire became my desire because of the one flesh relationship. Uh, we have animals. We have not one dog, but two dogs. As we send one child away to college or marriage, we have to replace that child with a new animal, apparently. So we keep inheriting animals and and it's just part of uh, the influence together. And I'm sure she could say the same thing in reverse, that there are ways that I've in- influenced her that she thinks differently than she used to. Probably not, but we'll just say it for the sake of the sermon. Okay, all right. Anyway, can hear you laughing through TV, maybe. Marriage is a commitment to contentment. You say the contentment is down in the 
the next verse with the money. Well, I understand that, but we're talking about virtues. We're talking about brotherly love and affection, what you love and what you shouldn't love, what you should be moving towards and what you, you should be moving away from. And I don't think it's by any accident or mistake that we're talking about marriage suddenly and then it goes right into money because these ideas and these principles are surrounding the issue of who you love and how you are content. These are virtues that interweave in these applications. And we're talking about being content with your marriage, holding it in high honor, keeping your marriage bed clean and undefiled, being holy in your heart. It's a positive command with a harrowing punishment. Look at this in verse four. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous person. The word for sexually immoral is porneia. It's where we get the, you know, the shortening version of that of porn or pornography. We're talking about an undefiled relationship, both in terms of action, but also in terms of your heart, in terms of your mind, in terms of your thinking, in terms of what you feed on or don't feed on privately. And I'm not just talking to the men. I'm also talking to the women. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You say those awful men, they're so terrible and lustful. Well, that, that sin is horrible, but it's not just for the men. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, It says it's the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's talking to men and women. I was looking at this earlier of Proverbs chapter chapter 6, where it talks about the evil woman. You say, well, where does she come from, this evil woman? Is that just the rare exception? Is that someone that, you know, just comes along every now and then? No. A woman who is left to her own lust can become this person where it's a person who's predatory with, with a smooth tongue, the smooth tongue of the adulteress, Proverbs six twenty four. Someone who's enticing, who's hunting down a precious life, verse 26. It's a hunter. It's a person who's a temptress. This is what Titus, the book of Titus chapter 2 warns against. Titus chapter 2 talks about older women in the church in a specific mission to train younger women to love their husband and their children. It's an older woman who's guarding younger women from becoming an adulterer. To love their husband, to not become dissatisfied and allow themselves to be opened up to being, being wooed into some other relationship, some other false ideal. Yes, men are leaders. Yes, they fall away and fall prey to their own passions. But women also have to fight against immoralities. First Thessalonians 4, verse 4, it says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. And what qualifies for a Gentile in this context? Someone who does not know God. Why? 
Why do we abstain from sexual sin? Verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 4, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things. God is judge. God's watching all these things. He's watching all of your relationships. He's watching your relationships at work. He's watching your relationships in whatever you're involved in. The Bible in the Old Testament, in the the law, the Torah that was preparing the first five books of our Bibles, that was preparation for those who were entering into the promised land, it warns again and again for someone to not take or steal his neighbor's wife. Don't do that. People that you live in community with, that you are connected to, we are to guard against that kind of sin. We're not just talking about physical full adultery. We're also talking about the adultery of the heart. And judgment is promised. Again, look at verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in high honor. And it says, God will judge. What does that mean? Judgment now and judgment future. If you are involved in immorality in your heart, in a hard-hearted, unrepentant way as a, as a serial user of pornography, you are under judgment presently and you are headed to eternal judgment. That's what the Bible says. That's what this word sexually immoral means. If there's not repentance, if there's not a, I've sinned and I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit and I realize that I need accountability. If you're just letting yourself go, then you're under judgment and headed for judgment. Billy Graham said about immoral writings back in his day that it's like the drippings of a broken sewer. This is the judgment now that leads to judgment later phase. Leviticus, which is the parallel Old Testament book to the book of Hebrews, speaks of men lying with men and women lying with women and this being an abomination and they shall surely be put to death. The blood is upon them. Well, that picture of death is judgment now leading to judgment for eternity. The old covenant meant physical death. Paul clarifies that eternal judgment awaits those who will not repent. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who are they? They are the sexually immoral, along with other things, being an idolater, adulterer, a homosexual, a thief drunkard, reviler, swindler. It's people who are hard-hearted and unrepentant. Just this sin of immorality is so pervasive. I had to camp here. Revelation 21.8 speaks of those who are cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, those who are involved in witchcraft, those who are perpetual liars. What's going to happen? They will be put in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. The second death, meaning you are in a resurrected state in hell forever. First Corinthians 6 talks about a judgment that isn't just promised for the future, but a judgment that's for now. When you defile the temple of the Holy Spirit with this sin, guess what you're doing? You are sinning against God as a believer who lives in you. So, If you're not headed for judgment for eternity because you're a believer now, 
then you are defiling your relationship with the Holy Spirit through your immorality. And it's personal. And it's intimate. And it hurts you. And it hurts your relationship. You, you are cutting off your present relationship with the Lord as a believer when you sin in this way. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Well, 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? And he says, Never! Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Same word. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. It's a picture of being the temple. It's a picture of being the Old Testament temple where you had the Holy of Holies. Imagine the priest walking in. He's coming up to the veil in the temple. He enters in. He's past the outer court into the holy place. And he sees a bunch of beer bottles and paraphernalia and trash and dirt and filth all around the altar. That's the picture here of defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's why Paul says, never. It's why Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It takes radical amputation to end this problem. And it is a life commitment to contentment that makes this kind of holiness in your life. You want to be holy? You have to be committed to being content with the institute of marriage, the biblical design of God's sovereignty over bringing a man together with a woman, saying, that's the ideal. I'm settling for nothing less, whether I'm married, whether I'm unmarried, whether I've always been single or I've recently become single. I am committed to that biblical vision of holiness, and it will not be defiled in my life. And I'm making that commitment to live that out. You're with a spouse. You say, I don't like my spouse, but I am committed to my spouse because I'm commanded and called to love my spouse. No matter what, for life, in purity, in holiness, as a non-negotiable. That's marriage. That's contentment. That's holding this in high regard. When you sin against your marriage or you sin in ways of fornication, and immorality, there are judgments that people fall over even in this life. There's mental firestorms that are burning with guilt in your mind over what you've done. You're hurting other people. You're robbing someone's soul. You're robbing someone's joy by defiling that other person. There are diseases that are brought on. There are broken relationships and seared consciences that come from this sin. Men who are married need to be committed to their spouse and not allow another woman into his heart. Women who are married need to guard their heart from becoming a seductress. First Peter or First Timothy 5:13 warns younger women those in this case who'd become widowed in young age instead of becoming idle, going house to house, 
being uh, um, idlers and gossips and busybodies. Verse 14 of 1 Timothy 5, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan. I don't know if people talk about this. People talk about spiritual warfare in a lot of different ways, but spiritual warfare and marriage go together. These things are just doing this all the time. You say, where is the demonic activity? Well, anything that's assaulting the honor of marriage is satanic. Satanic. You go, okay, well, that's satanic. You watch something on TV or you watch something in a movie. That's satanic. This is coming at me online. Oh, that's the adversary. That's the accuser trying to get a wedge in and destroy my soul. I'm watching someone be led astray by passions, by by being idle, by going house to house. This is, what's, this is what's paraded for us in the media, partying and casual interaction and just hanging out and letting things happen. This is Satan leading people astray. No, instead, get married. Don't follow that passion. Satan wedges, gets a wedge in marriage in all kinds of ways. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and and. and through five, go through the idea of men, that it's wrong to have sexual relations with a woman outside of marriage. It's a temptation to this immorality. It says, verse two, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. A husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. If the wife doesn't have authority of her own body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority of his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for agreement for a limited time. What does this mean? This means that, that the marriage bed, staying healthy and not being defiled means that you are in a spiritual conversation with your spouse. That you're praying, that you're, that you're acknowledging that your hearts are involved in your marriage. That if there's an interruption maritally, it's for the sake of prayer. Otherwise, look at this at the end of verse five. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Temptation, immorality, adultery is satanic temptation. It's internal. It's from the sin of the heart, but it is a temptation of the devil. And he is out to destroy marriages. So a quick word to single people, and I've mentioned single people throughout this sermon. Some people have found themselves to be single, having lost a spouse to death or to a divorce. Or perhaps you've never had the opportunity to be married. I just want to encourage you, don't despise your singleness. Don't be embittered against marriage. Don't make marriage idolatry. Don't bow to the ideal that you have in your mind that it would be better right now for you to be married if you're not married yet or not supposed to be married. Perhaps you have the gift of singleness. Perhaps you're not burning with passion to be married. Don't despise that. Don't ignore that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two to 35 that a single person that has the gift of singleness has an undivided devotion to the Lord. You are completely free to minister 
with all kinds of time. When you are married, you, your, your heart is intertwined with that person's concerns, life needs, all of it all the time. When you're single and your devotion is on Christ, you have an incredible opportunity to serve the Lord. Something that other people do not have. More energy, more time, more resources. Less resources are necessary to take care of you. Paul was single. He, he's a picture of full-time ministry and service and fulfillment. He said he was content in prison. That actually, that word content means self-sufficient. You are satisfied within God's provision, much or little within your situation. Christ is sufficient in my life for my needs. Can happen. You don't want to doubt that. You don't want to wish that away if that's what God has provided for you, those tremendous freedoms that you have. You also want to honor marriage at the same time. Don't ignore marriage if you're single. Honor marriage, honor marriages, honor the institution of marriage from the Bible. Honor what it stands for. Honor the purity of marriage. It will open up opportunities and unique relationships that perhaps you couldn't have otherwise by being free about the issue of marriage and honoring marriages. Well, we're out of time. Next time we're going to talk about money. And you think I meddled this week with marriage? Well, next week the Bible really goes to the heart of things, even on a deeper level, the core of our hearts, which is money. And I'm saving it for next time. The Bible talks about money, I think, 140 times. We talk about godliness with contentment and how 1 Timothy 6 says it's great gain. Well, listen, it's a hard reset season where things are opening up. Don't miss the opportunity to take some time and focus applicationally with the word. Apply the Bible to your heart today, this week, look into next week. God willing, we'll meet together, and I look forward to seeing you.